0: I thank everyone for coming. I'm going to go ahead and introduce Mark. Uh, Mark Stewart is Professor of Civil Engineering and Director of the Center for Infrastructure Performance and Reliability at the University of Newcastle, Australia. And this is the second year that he's been at Mershon for several weeks each time, working uh, in collaboration with John Mueller. And I'd like to point to this project as one of our truly multidisciplinary <laughs> projects focused on the concept of risk assessment and particularly probabilistic risk assessment. And you might think uh, it's a long reach from John Mueller to infrastructure, uh, performance and reliability, but actually it's been a very interesting uh, collaboration to watch develop as John got very interested in how people think about threat from terrorism and how they think about how big that threat is. Uh, He began to reach out to people, Mark Stewart, uh, the principal one. Uh, who actually really work in professional terms at assessing risk and then deciding how much extra uh, money, frankly, to spend uh, in the development of infrastructure to protect against those risks. So it becomes a very concretized approach. And I think we'll learn more in a minute that the difference in the way we do it in the national security domain and at least uh, in the terrorism domain from the way they do it when there's – uh, engineers involved is very different, and so John and Mark have been working for about two years now. I think you have an article coming together. one yeah, now, yeah. Um, um, on published. this, Mark's a, a very successful uh, engineer. He's I'm not going to read all of it. He's published more than 300 technical papers. He's been doing this for more than 25 years. He's received huge grants from the Australian Research Council. And today he's going to discuss the cost-benefit assessment of counterterrorism protective measures as applied to critical infrastructure and key assets. So, Mark, it's great to have great. you back. Thank Thanks, you. Rick.
1: We're looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Well, first, um, I'd just, just like to thank, thank Rick and the Michonne Center for providing some financial support. To, and they enabled me to visit here, here several times and, and to work with John and hopefully make other collaboration as well. As Rick said, my background is in civil engineering, and I've been doing that more than 25 years now. And in terms of risk assessment, all that time has been looking at really low probability, high consequence events, right? Mainly earthquakes and cyclones and hurricanes. And all of it is really about trying to work out what level of, of protection do we need to design for buildings or bridges, and at what level does it become cost effective. Or also, what level does become, become waste, does become, become wasteful? So, in a sense, what led me into this field is that after the events of 9-11, I went to, to, to a couple of talks by experts on blast damage and terrorism, and what I kept on seeing time and time again was, was worst-case scenarios. They're right? about a five-ton device going off in downtown Sydney or downtown Melbourne, and, talk, and talking about the devastation and loss of life and so on. And there was little emphasis, really, on the spectrum of risk. So we really just looking at the worst-case scenario all the time, right? And we don't do that in engineering. Normally, in engineering, we look at the, the probability of these events occurring, the consequences of them, and we try to balance the cost versus the benefits, right? So we don't design every building to withstand a standard Richter 10 earthquake, right? It's possible, but the probability of that is so small, we're not going to waste society's resources by by trying to strengthen every single building like that. So we look at the spectrum of risks. The other thing i found is there was a lot of arm-waving. Everyone had their own view about about terrorism and what what should be done. It was someone's opinion, it was someone else's opinion. It seemed very subjective. And as an engineer, I like to express things in terms of numbers. To me, numbers are very, very objective. They can be wrong, but at least if it's wrong, someone else can, can say it's wrong and, and there's a basis for further debate. So, if you express risks into the numbers rather than words, then that gives you a, a more clearer basis on how to start a discussion, rather than saying, it's, a, it's, a, it's just my view. And also, with, with numbers and equations, if it's done properly, the assumptions you made are made are very transparent. If you make a bad assumption, it's pretty obvious. So, if we start looking at, really, a cost-benefit assessment of security measures, we need to ask these questions. We need to get, get, get some answers. The first one is, now, what is the threat probability? And what's the probability that there will be a terrorist attack this year, next year, or in a certain time period? What are the consequences of an attack? Right? Is it, can it be small? Can it be large? And probably more importantly, if we do have security measures in place, what's the risk reduction by those security measures? No security measure is going to be 100% effective. And I'd argue that many of them are probably not even 50% effective. So we need to factor all of those in. And ultimately, we're trying to make a decision. The Decision really is, do we do something? Or in some cases, it's optimal actually to do do nothing at all and put that money somewhere else, where we get bigger bang for our buck And, and better benefits. So, in terms of um, counterterrorism measures, um, I've, I've done some work on infrastructure, as Rick said, and, and, and with John, we've done some work on, on, on aviation security, looking at air marshals and hardening cockpit doors. And, these are, and and I'll touch across across all of these examples. So, I suppose, and you know, what's the problem is, there's a large amount of money being spent on homeland security in in the US, right? More than 400 billion dollars since the events of 9/11. The many decisions made about counterterrorism cal- in the ab- immediately after 9/11 nine, nine involves large amounts of money. Right? They were done very, very quickly, and some of them had had quite disruptive effect to society and and the economy. And like in, in, anyone who's flown knows knows all about that. Is is just one example. And in many cases, the effectiveness of these measures isn't really known. Right? There, there hasn't been any detailed quantitative studies or any very or or like systems modelling to really think, well, you know, do, do, we, do, we, do we need all of these measures, right? And what's the most, most, most appropriate mix? And that now, after, after 9-11, it's perfectly understandable that, that the governments want to bring out a lot of security measures. You know, they have to act quickly because they didn't know what the threat environment was. There could be more tax, right? So that's understandable. But after eight, eight or nine years, now is a time for a bit more reflection. About, about what's an optimal use of our, of our resources. And the US isn't alone. I mean, Australia has, has gone through the same process. You know, we've, we're spending large amounts of money on, on homeland security. So it's not just a US issue. You know. Many governments have reacted in that way. So when I talk about, about risk, it's really the product of the threat probability times the consequences. Right? And that can give us, really, it's like an expected loss. Right, a bit like what is used in the insurance industry. So it could be expected damages per year, expected fatalities per year. Right, they're the two main measures that that we're concerned with. And that's the definition of risk used in Australian and international standards on risk assessment. So that, that, that's awfully straightforward. Now when we start looking about um, decision making, you know, there's a flow chart. And, Essentially, we try to determine what can go wrong and how, how can it happen. We then try and think about well, what are the consequences if something does happen? What's the probability of that occurring? Right? We you know, look at the product of those two and that gives us our risk. We obviously want to do sensitivity analyses to, you know, to see how sensitive the results are going to be to, to our assumptions and our numbers. But the key thing is really the risk assessment part is actually, is actually what do we do with that number? Right? If I work out that the risk of death is, 10, is one in a million per year, what does that mean? How do I use that to actually make a decision? And that's really what the risk assessment is about, trying to work out well, what risks are, are acceptable and then use that to make, to make a decision. And it's at that point that we really come to the point is do we do something or we, or we do nothing? If, if we do something, we might want to treat the risk, we might want to you know, use, those, use extra security measures, transfer the risk, or just accept it. But it's really, this is the crux of the problem in terms of decision-making. So the Department of Homeland Security brought out a National Infrastructure Plan um, earlier this year, which sounded quite quite encouraging. The the whole plan is based upon a risk-based approach, so that's fine too. They define risk as consequence, vulnerability and threat, that's all fine, I can't argue with that. But in their their, um, flowchart here, they assess the risk and then they prioritise and then then they spend the money. There's actually nothing about risk acceptance criteria, there's nothing about other risks actually too low. The implication is the risks are high, and they have to prioritise and spend money. So it's a bit of a bit of a concern that the, the, this, this report basically says we must do something. Right? So they've made that decision in advance, um, and that's not really an appropriate risk management approach. And it's and so and so no surprise is that really that the DHS is, a, is is very risk averse, right? and, and that's not used to, to many of you. So all of this is really about decision support. How how can we help get more information to help make better decisions, better informed decisions? So there's many security measures and options, different costs, different effectiveness. So there's not one straightforward solution. Normally, there's a whole range of options, and it's best to find the mix, which gives you the best outcome at the least cost. So one approach is to look at uh, the net benefit. What's the benefits minus the cost? And if that's a positive number, then, then your investment produces a positive return, and that's a good thing. And that's the basis for how we design nuclear power plants, aircraft, levy protection, and other natural hazard mitigation. So there's, there's nothing really new here. What is really a bit new here is really the application to counter So with probabilistic terrorism risk assessment, we need to know something about the threat probability, Right, that's very difficult, and, and we'll come to that a bit a bit later on. The consequences, if there's a scenario, it's not difficult to work out what the potential consequences could be. Probably the biggest challenge is, is what's the vulnerability of of society to terrorist attacks, and how effective are the, are the counterterrorism measures? Right, the cost of these measures is, again, fairly easy to find out. Right, what's difficult to know is really how effective are they? There's uncertainties in information, and, and that's why I, I use uncertainty in probabilistic modelling and risk-based decision support. So, when a measure is cost-effective, is, is we need to start thinking about: well, have we put numbers to so loss of life, damages, the threat probability? We need to know. We need to know values for those for those particular issues. And the whole idea is to optimise the mix of, C- of CT measures. Right, and as I said before, we'll, we've, I've done some work on build infrastructure, and John and I have done some work on aviation security, and I'll, 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 I'll touch across all of these. Now, in discussions with, with John, I've had, he, he seems very averse to the use of equations. Um, as an engineer, I just I can't help but use equations. So I've got one equation in this presentation. That's all. And it's, a very, and it's I think it's a very simple equation. But, you can be the judge of that. The net benefit is really what's the benefit of extra security in terms of you know how many lives are saved, how many da- what damages has, has has been averted because of that extra expenditure, and then we deduct from that what this what these security cost is. So the benefit is a reduction in expected loss. And expected loss is simply the probability of an attack times the 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 consequences or the loss of that attack. So this is really the risk. And it could be dollars per year, for example, and then the reduction is basically we have this r- factor R out here, which is my amount of risk reduction I get with my counterterrorism measure. Right, so that, that's just one side of the equation. The other side is is, is simply the cost of security. We put that in equation form: risk reduction times the probability of attack times the the losses minus how much I've spent to get that risk that risk reduction. So the left-hand side is the benefits, the right-hand side is the cost. And if this value is greater than zero, then, then it's ga- going to be cost-effective. So you maximise the benefits by really maximising your risk reduction.
2: Right?
1: Or, 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 and, and the bigger the benefits means that if the bigger that the losses, then obviously the bigger the benefits, if, if you can reduce those occur in the first place. Or you can minimise what the security cost is going to be. So this is a very, very very simplistic. I could turn that into fifty equations just like that. Right. So, but will just keep it very, very simple at this at this point in time. So the first step is well, what are the existing risks? Just just to get a feel for for um, um, where we are. Um, there's concern in Australia about mass casualties at airport terminals, and, and I think those concerns are. Uh, shared in other countries as well. If you just look at at, at the numbers of attacks in the past, you know, the, there aren't too many attacks on airport terminals. Um, in the Asia Pacific region, there's been nine attacks in, in, in the last in the last ten year period. Very few fatalities. Most of these attacks is just someone with a with a gun, right, just shooting. If you actually look at, at the probability of, of dying per year. Twenty-nine fatalities, the population of that <coughs> the region is probably five hundred million people. It's it's pretty low. In Europe, it's even less. Right? So the past statistics will tell you airport terminals isn't a particularly attractive <coughs> target, or maybe it's or maybe it's so well defended that that the terrorists are, d- are deterred and go somewhere else. But if we just look at the, the fatality rate in fact vehicle accidents is like one in ten thousand. So me being an airport terminal is probably one of the safest things I can do. Okay, so my argument would be, well, actually, what, what's the problem at all? But let's assume that there is, and that's something which is which, which can be debatable. So this is just a this is just a hypothetical example. So the numbers are sort of made up, but they're sort of meant to be realistic you know, without the benefit of a whole whole lot of um, um, intel information. So what's the threat probability to an airport? Well, that, that, that's, what, that's what we need to know. What's the consequences of an attack? What's the cost of the security? And what's the risk reduction we get from that security? So where to start? You, you know, you could you, you could do a whole PhD just on this. But let's just look at the existing terrorist incident databases, the public available information and just, just a bit of common sense and just see what some sort of numbers you will get. So before, there's only been five bomb attacks on, on airport terminals in Asia-Pacific in the last 10 years. There's roughly 500 airport terminals in that part of the world, roughly. Divide one by, one by the other, there's really only one, one in a thousand chance of a, an attack of a, of a terminal per year. And one of the key things we need to think about when we talk about probabilities is the probability that a specific item of infrastructure is going to be targeted. So there's 500 terminals all around Asia-Pacific. The probability of one of them being attacked is actually pretty low. The consequences. Um, It's hard to think of a situation where attacking an airport terminal is going to cause an enormous amount of casualties. They're they're normally over a very large area, normally only two to three storeys high. People are normally fairly well dispersed. Um, You just can't blow up an airport terminal. Right? And the analogy I'd make is that, if you look, at the, an airport terminal is a little bit like the Pentagon. Very large building, not particularly tall. So within attacks of, of 9-11, the damage of the Pentagon was relatively minimal compared to what happened to the World Trade Center, where you had a, a, a tall building. And the experience shows it's much easier to cause a large amount of damage on, on tall commercial buildings, such as, such as the World Trade Center or the Oklahoma City bombings. So airport terminals themselves are not are not that attractive, but but given that, let's say there's five hundred deaths and maybe and we put a value of five million dollars per, per per life, which is which is roughly right. Structural damage to the terminal, maybe fifty million. The biggest consequence is really really going to be flight disruptions, you might need to close the terminal for a short while, you might need to relocate checking counters and so on. That could be a billion dollars. But the numbers are not going to be particularly large, but let's say it's $1.3 billion. Now, the cost of, of the security measures at the airport terminals, I don't, really, I don't have much of a feel for that. That's not, that's not my expertise. But the extra cost is probably going to be about $2 million, $2 million a year. That could be because of parking restrictions, extra bollards, extra security people, um, hardening of the structure itself. Uh, and these terminals are designed for long periods of, periods of, t- of time. So th- any investment is not just for one year, but it's, it, it will be spread over over many years. Risk reduction: said so no security measure is going to be one hundred percent effective. It will depend upon the personnel, the human factors, the reliability of of technology, the ability of terrorists to actually find 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 countermeasures. So in actual fact, it's really a system and reliability, reliability analysis. Trying to work out how an attack could start here and end up there, right? whether it goes through this path or this path or, or combinations of paths. But let's assume, for example, that an airport terminal is just a nice series system, and each security measure has a probability of detection of 0.33. Okay, so there's two equations in this talk. <laughs> just realised. So. It's a series system, but, but, but basically, if each if the terrorist has to go from here to there and get through all of these four countermeasures, if the probability of detecting one of them is 0.33, the probability of of, not, of getting through the end is only 20%. So it's 80% effective. And that's a pretty high value. Okay, so we, we run the numbers through the, the, the equation... And I'd like to present this as, as like a, as like a bar, bar chart. We have the probability of attack versus what the security costs are going to be. And this is the net benefit on the vertical axis. So if the probability of attack is 0.1, and the security cost is only 500 million, uh, 500,000 dollars per year, then there's a, then there's a very strong net benefit right, of about, about 100 million dollars. It's quite good. If you think the probability of attack is going to be something like 1 in 10,000, then you actually get a negative value. And we can cycle that through for different different security costs. So this region here is really the cost-effective region. As an engineer, I'm an expert on, on what the threat probability is going to be and perhaps even what the security costs will be. But this information can can then be used by, by those people to say, well, we think we're here and maybe there, and that that means there's that means really there's a net benefit of a negative value, right? It's not very cost effective. I would argue that if we're looking at the probability of the attack of terminals, is probably one in thousand. What we discussed before, we're along here. It's not very clear, but these are all negative values, right? So there's no net benefit. If you think you've been conservative and maybe you think the risk reduction is, is, is only twenty percent rather than eighty percent, so you think the security is actually less effective than what you than what you think it would be, you run the numbers through again, and sure, these numbers change a bit, but the general trend is still exactly the same. Right? So the idea with the fact that we can we can quantify this is we can then start to do sensitivity analysis to see, well, you know, which assumptions are going to be important and which assumptions are not going to be important in, in making the final decision. So the attack probability is something less than one in, a, one in a thousand, then in this region here these measures will not be cost effective. Right? If you think there's a pretty high threat likelihood in this region, then it is cost effective. But I'm not the one to tell you which one it is. It's really just for you know people like yourselves and other experts in this area to see where they fit on such a plot like that. But the main thing to realize is, is though is, is that to be cost effective, the threat probability has to be pretty high, And past experience suggests that the probability of attack at airport terminals is nowhere near 1 in 100 or 1 in 10 per year. OK, let's look at buildings. That's something I'm probably a lot more more familiar with. Um, A case study is a published paper I found on the uh, academic building at the US Naval Postgraduate School in California, um, where some students did, did a research uh, project on, on this topic. And they were thinking, they were assuming a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device and attack in a building. It could kill about 70 um, students or, or faculty. They worked out the loss to be about $550 million if such an attack were to occur. The cost of strengthening the building, to make the building in a sense blast-proof, isn't actually that expensive if you average it out over a 25-year 20, period. That's about $130,000, and the risk reduction by that is actually very high. But there are actually other other costs, in addition to just strengthening the building itself. After, after 9-11, they, they appointed a lot of the extra security staff, so there's a significant, significant cost there. They closed three access gates. There used to be four gates, they only made it down to one, so, the f- so they had the security much tougher at that one gate. <coughs> Having one gate increased travel um, distance for some commuters. that meant the longer queues to actually actually get past the security barriers. And, and it worked out that that's really costing 3.3, 31.7 person per year in waiting time. Right? So you put a dollar value on, on how much someone's time is worth, and you're getting you know, a, few, a few million dollars. There are parking restrictions of buildings, so you couldn't quite park as close to buildings as you, as you could before. And so the extra walking time in the building means wasted time, in a sense. Um, so you add those you add those in together, and the opportunity costs tend to, be, tend to outweigh the, the, the direct cost of providing security. And the opportunity costs are often not considered in any counter-tourism methodologies. So run the numbers through again, and in this case I've presented it more more as a graph. So again, we have the annual threat probability, and it's per building per year, towards the net benefit, and the net benefit here is zero down here. So anything above the line, net benefit is positive, so it's going to be cost effective. Anything below the line is not cost effective. Um, some papers have looked at, but well, what is the attack probability of a typical building in the United States? And there's millions of buildings in the US. So the probability that one specific building is going to be attacked is actually very, very low. Unless, of course, there is a specific threat. Right? But not many buildings have a specific threat. And so in that case, the probability of attacking a, a single building is one in a million or less. Right? It's actually very, very small. So somewhere along here. So basically, if you're along here, the net benefit is negative. If you felt there was a specific threat against that building or a whole class of buildings, then that threat would have to be you know, something a bit more than like one in a thousand to be, to be cost effective. So if you think that the threat probability for your building is somewhere above this line, then you get a net benefit, so it's going to be cost effective. If it's below this line, it, it's not. One in a thousand is a very high high probability. Right? If, if that was if that was the case, you'd be seeing multiple attacks on buildings every single year, right? and we're not and, and we're not seeing that. This sort of analysis doesn't really apply in cases where there's a specific threat. So you wouldn't do this sort of analysis of Empire State Building or the Statue of Liberty or something like that. For those buildings, you know they're going to be a target, and it probably is prudent to take some counter measures. But for typical buildings just like this one or a whole lot of buildings on campuses or commercial and residential buildings all around the US and there's a lot of work done in engineering to think of ways to strengthen those buildings it just isn't cost effective. There's far too many buildings multiply each of those buildings by a few million dollars each and you get enormous amounts of money. And it's just not cost effective to do. Highway bridges is something else. There's countless general articles in, 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 in engineering community about how to strengthen bridges and how much it costs and everything else. Um, so we we'll want some numbers through here. Let's look at a VBID about 100 kilograms needed to, to to destroy a bridge. There's been examples of bridge collapses due to other reasons rather than um, terrorism. In most cases, the fatalities on a bridge are pretty low. Right. There's normally not many vehicles on a bridge at any one point in your time, and even those who are on a bridge, they don't all die. Right. Many of them just fall into the water. They might be injured, but many of them survive. So again, taking the highway bridge isn't going to kill hundreds of thousands of people.
0: Right.
1: So on average, it's about 16 fatalities. right, if a bridge was to collapse without any warning at all. Bridges are, not, are fairly cheap to replace on the whole, right. $20 million. And while they're replacing that bridge, there'll be user delays. People have to drive further to get to get to the destination. So the losses, in this case on average, might be about might be about 100 160 million dollars. The cost to strengthen bridge again is it's, 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 it's not a vast amount of money, maybe 250 thousand dollars, and you get a large amount of risk risk reduction. So we have a similar plot as before. Um, Again, I'd argue we're probably the threat probably for most bridges is somewhere down here, you know, less than one in a million. Right. So it's just not cost effective to do that. Right. For some icon bridge, like the Golden State Golden Gate bridge and others, you might mm-hmm. want to do something. But for your stock standard interstate highway bridge, you, know, you just can't do it. It's just it's very inefficient use of use of resources. OK, I think most of you can probably relate more to aviation security, so I'll spend a bit more time talking about that. Right. Since events of 9-11, there's been a whole raft of, of security measures, and many of you have, would have experienced those personally. There's increased pre-boarding security. Um, there's been hardened and copied doors. We have the Federal Air Marshal Service. Australia has a similar service, uh, Air Marshal Service, The Europeans do, the Canadians do, so many countries have gone through the same process as the US. And something which is often left out is that to replicate another 9-11 type attack you would need the passengers and crew to be passive just like they were on on 9-11. The odds are that won't happen again. So the crew and passenger resistance is, a, is probably, could probably be the biggest deterrent to trying to, to repeat another 9-11 type attack. The Translation Security uh, Service has these, what they call, 20 layers of security, you know, including you know, baggy screening and canine you know, dog sniffers and all sorts of stuff. And the question I, I would have is, well, why do you need 20 layers? There's, no, there's nothing magical about that number. Maybe 19 is going to be enough. Maybe you need 23. I don't know. And I I, I suspect that they don't know either. You can keep on adding and adding adding things on, but what benefit are you getting? And some of these these layers are very very costly and have quite large opportunity costs. The Federal Air Marshal Service costs nearly a billion dollars a year. That's a large amount of money. Um, So I suppose that the question I have is, well, how do you work out that uh, 20 is going to be enough? or too many. So let's look at the, at the federal, federal Air Marshal Service. Right, they're trying to prevent another 9-11 type attack occurring. Um, there's been one attack uh, in the 10-year period up to up to 9-11, and that was uh, the period of a heightened threat from Al-Qaeda. So you might argue that you know, the, the attack probability might be 0.1 per year, right? one, in, one in every 10 years. It was the largest attack ever. They had the ele- element of surprise. As I said before, the passengers will not be passive. They will, they will fight back now, just like with um, UA Flight 93. And there was a, a flight, a Qantas flight, um, some guy tried to take over the flight um, in Australia a few years ago. right? And the, and the passengers and crew Manhandled the, manhandled the guy, just, um, disarmed him, and so nothing bad really happened. So more, more difficult is, is more, okay, if you have the air marshal service, what extra reduction risk do we get by having air marshals compared to when we don't have them? And, and this is probably the hardest number to actually actually now down. So if you look at, at, at the four possible uh, ways to prevent a 9-11 type, t- type attack, let's assume that the crew and passenger resistance is pro- probably the biggest deterrent. And so, let's, so they reduce the risk by 50% immediately, and at zero cost. Right? So it's always there now. We assume that pre-boarding security, hardening the cockpit doors, and the air marshal service themselves, let's say they're equally effective between them, each of those reduced the risk by about sixteen point seven per cent. So you know they're sizable reductions in risk, right? You, you, you wouldn't say immediately that, that, that they're not worthwhile doing. The trouble is their marshals are not, not on every single flight. Right? They'll be lucky to be on ten per cent of flights. Right? So the odds are if, if there is a, a terrorist or if, if, if there is going to be a a hijacking, the odds are there won't be any marshal on the plane. So, the risk reduction is 16% assuming there's an air marshal on the plane. Right. If there isn't, it goes down to about a tenth of that, to maybe 1.67%. Right. It could be, you could argue there's several ways, but it, it could be argued that, that actually air marshals, the service, it could actually be counterproductive because passengers may not fight back thinking that an air marshal is, 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 is going to step up and intervene. Right, so, actually, actually, the Air Marshal Service itself may give passengers a false sense of, sense of, of security and maybe be passive, and actually, the passengers should be fighting back. Okay, the cost of Air Marshals uh, is about $900 million a year, uh, and the airlines have to provide free seats to the Air, to the air Marshals. So, the air, so, it costs the airlines a large amount of money, and those seats are in first class. Right, it's in you know, 1A and 2A. That that, was one A and one and one D. I think is where they nearly always sit. So first class. The consequences of a 9/11 type type attack, and let's look at attack on on one building. 500 500 fatalities. It's about seven and a half billion dollars. Similar amount in terms of clean up costs and and to rebuild a building. The biggest impact is is going to be the loss of GDP. Right? the, the flow-on flow effects in, in, in indirect costs. So let's say it's $100 billion for the sake of argument. We, 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 we run these these numbers through again, again for different different attack, attack probabilities to get a feel for, for, for what's going on. But in every case, the net benefit is negative and strongly so.
2: Right?
1: So if we think the attack probability is, is 0.1 per year, one, in, one every 10 years, you're losing $733 million per year, on average. So that really says, for every dollar you're spending on the air marshal service, you're only really getting 19 cents in benefits. So that's not, that's not, that's not, a, not a particularly good deal, or good, or good bargain. If you think the tax probability is 0.5 per year, it's still going, going to be a net loss. So I think it's difficult to think of a scenario where air marshals are really going to be cost-effective. Now, you know, of course, there could be information, intel out there, but that, that, that I'm not aware of. The attack probability has to be pretty darn high for this to be positive value. And this has been, and this is taking into account a pretty large consequences too. What I like about this is it's a very transparent process. Right? How I get to this conclusion, you've you got the equation, you can see see the numbers i put in. Right? If you think risk reduction is going to be higher, you can put that, a, num- a bigger number in there to see whether it really changes these, these, these numbers. If you think the losses could be higher, you put those in and, and you see how it changes that. So it's something which can be easily updated when you have better or new information or where you might have... Contrasting information to see whether you still get the same outcome in the end. <coughs> the other measure was was hardened hardened cockpit doors. Again, this made a lot of sense at the time because right? if you stop hijackers getting access to the to, to the to the cockpit, well, the battle is is, is basically won. Right? They really can't can't replicate a 9-11 type attack. And again, every airline or Every airline in the world has, has hardened their cockpit doors soon after to 9-11. In the US, uh, they had to retrofit maybe 6,000 um, um, aircraft. These doors weigh 50 to 100 kilograms, right? So it means you've got extra fuel costs and everything else. So you factor, factor all that in. It's about $40 million a year extra. Again, the same risk reduction measures as before, so let's assume it's going to be about 16%. Right for the for the doors now the doors on every single is on every aircraft, so any time there be a terrorist attack, that door is is going to be there. Right? Unlike air marshals. So now, same equation we plug in different numbers. Uh, in this case, threat probability versus versus net net benefit. If we think the attack probability is point 0.1, then the net benefit is way up here somewhere, right? It's an enormous amount of money, which is good. If you think the tax probability is only 1 in 100, you still get a positive net net benefit. So when I compare the situation I had with the, with the air marshals, where for 0.1, I had a net loss, for doors, I get a very large value. So I can say here that really hard to copy doors seems very cost-effective, if you think the attack probability is bigger than, than that number. Right? And I suspect it is. I suspect you know, it was somewhere in this region here. Right? So so in, so in this case, $1 of, of cost right, to put them in gets $41.75 in, in benefits. So that's a very good investment. So, so harding the doors was a, was a very cost-effective solution and I would argue much more cost-effective than air marshal service and, and, and perhaps a whole range of other um, CT measures. So I probably don't, don't, don't want to get too fixed on the numbers because the numbers can vary and everyone has different views. I think what's important is the method, right, to, to, to try to illustrate how you can show whether some CT measures are worthwhile or not. And I should also, also say that it's it's not the only criteria. You wouldn't make a decision purely purely upon this. Right? There's going to be political issues, there could be some social issues, some other some other economic issues. But this sort of work helps inform the, the decision-maker. Right? It's not meant to be a black and white yes-no. It just gives the decision-maker some, some extra information. Right? There could be cases where the decision-maker is quite happy to do something which is not cost-effective because they can think of other benefits, you know, which, which may be non-quantifiable. Non, non There's been a bit of debate recently about vulnerability versus resilience. Um, I've seen so many talks now where people talk about vulnerabilities. And everything is vulnerable, and we need to do something, and you know, this building is vulnerable, and you know, aircraft are vulnerable, ships are vulnerable, nuclear power plants are vulnerable, power supply is vulnerable. And the implication is that we should do something to fix it up. Mm-hmm. Well, all infrastructure is vulnerable. Right? Nothing is going to be you know, impervious to any sort of, in sort of terrorist attack or, in, or, or, any other, <coughs> any, or any other hazard. <coughs> it's difficult to um, classify some infrastructure as being critical right? or maybe a key asset. Right? So really, all infrastructure is going to be important. The key thing to recognise, though, is that if you, if you get damaged to most items of, of, um, of um, infrastructure, <coughs> it will be it will be disruptive, it could be inconvenient right, to the to, to local community, but it's not going to have any long-term effects normally. Right? These things can be repaired or replaced. An engineer, most infrastructure I know is designed not so much for terrorism, but it's designed... For natural hazards, is designed to be redundant. So, if a bridge happens to to be washed away in a flood, it's not difficult for people to find another way to get to the to their destination. There's normally more than one bridge across the river, right, for, for example. So, you know, networks themselves normally mean if one path is blocked, there be there be another path. It could be disruptive. it could cost some extra money. Um, you know, it could be it could be inconvenient, but it's but it's going to be Resilient. Right? So, it's really important to recognise that that people, as well infrastructure, institutions, and people, are normally highly resilient. Right? And so, we shouldn't sort of overestimate the fact that we are vulnerable, because right? really, it's more important to focus on 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 resilience. So, just to some final ob- observations. Um, terrorists themselves the risks themselves seem to be a lot less than a lot of other natural hazards, right? or particularly natural hazards. Right? I've done some work on um, cyclone and, 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 and damage risks in the US as, as, as well as well, it was Australia, and there the damages are incredible every single year. Right? You just have to look at what happened at New Orleans. Right? So, if you, get, if you want to invest money, you might want to consider more of an all hazards approach. Right? And it's and it, I would argue it's probably better to, to divert some money from counterterrorism and, and put that into reducing or mitigating the effects of natural hazards, right, where you are guaranteed a payoff. Right, the Department of Homeland Security, I think, is is highly risk-averse, and I wouldn't be the only person to think that, perhaps. Right, is that rational, given all the other hazards that we are really, really exposed to? Uh, quantitative or, or probabilistic risk assessment... Uh, that's, uh, I like that because it's a transparent process. The assumptions and qualifications can be queried. Right? You, can test a, you can test alternative hypotheses and, and you can do all sorts of, all sorts of sensitivity, sensitivity analyses. And that's why, for example, for any new nuclear power plant to get a site licence to operate, they need to go through a probabilistic risk assessment. Right? And these documents can sometimes be, or can, can be many volumes, probably that much wide in a bookshelf. It, it's an incred, incredible amount of detail. Right? So it involves many, many person years of effort. But all that effort means you understand how how the system behaves, right? What can go wrong? What goes right? Backups, all those sort of things. You know, and nuclear power plants are obviously very controversial, right? So. So any assumptions you make, all the equations, everything else has to be well-argued and and then subject to rigorous peer review. So there's a large amount of rigour before a government is going to allow a nuclear power plant to be built, or even to allow existing ones to continue operating beyond their their initial um, site site agreement. So I don't see any reason why we shouldn't apply a similar type of rigour to can to, to, to counter tourism spending. And that brings on to climate change. Uh, but that's also the also also the flavour of the month. A lot of the issues we've gone through to today apply equally to to climate change. Right? Society is very alarmed about about this new hazard. There's we're talking about large sums of money to be to be invested. And the issue is well how do we make sure that the money we, we, we invest Give us, give us the best outcomes. And I would argue that we need a similar type of rigour to res- really assess the, the cost and benefits of impact and, 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 and adaptation. I know for climate change, there's really, there's really two camps. You know, the mitigating the CO2 emissions, right, is one way, and, and, and that seems to get most of the attention. The other way is really adaptation, right? How do we adapt to it given climate change does occur? Right? And we need to apply similar type, types of rigour to, to this to help work out which, which path we, we want to go down or, more importantly, the mix of measures that we, that we want to do actually, to actually actually solve this. So the methods here apply to well beyond and They reapply to, to any hazard where you want to be very careful about assessing the risks, costs and benefits to really help inform the decision maker a, a, a little bit further. There's some papers... And thank you for your attention.
2: Mark, you can handle your own...
1: Yeah, sure, microphone. it's fine. <laughs> At the back? Yeah. Yeah, a, a
2: terrific presentation. Huh? And I think the framework is so great, Like right, you point out you can modify the inputs mm-hmm. and, and the outputs are really mm-hmm. different. So I'm, I guess my question concerns some of what we put into the model... Uh, some of the distributional assumptions you we were talking about seem to sort of suggest that sometimes with the airport example that we are, we're were we drawn from a uniform distribution, right? so that if there are 500 airports in a certain region, then there's an equal you know, probability you know, hypothetically, right? But of course we know, I mean, as you point out later, that I mean, I would for example, assume that the White House should spend more in security than the Merchon Center, right? Mm. Um, similarly, uh, there's sort of reflexivity there with security too, right? Because If you Hmm. um, look at LL, say, right, where I they've never had a certain incident on any flight, and uh, you can say from a probabilistic perspective, well, you know, you spend all this money on security, but there's never been any incidents. On the other hand, you say, well, it's precisely because they spend so much on security that there's never any incidents. Hmm. And so when you put into the model, then you can do a very different sort of output. Um, And so because it is such an elegant model, I'm wondering whether you could maybe talk about those inputs there.
1: Yeah, well, the two issues that they raised really, there's no simple solution to that. You really have to look at the system in detail to try and get as much insight as you can. So you want to look at past experience right, to see whether, whether there's been any, any motivation to attack or maybe it's been foiled. Right? So maybe, maybe that shows that actually the effectiveness is actually very high already rather than that the attack probably is low. And you want to think towards the future to see how that can change. So you know we don't live in a static in a static environment. Um, the other issue with, with, with this as well um, is also the fact that you sort of, this work assumes that if you reduce the risk, for, for example, airport e- airport terminals, that that society is actually better off. Now that applies if I'm looking at earthquakes and natural hazards, something like that. But the other issue is I could just transfer the risk to somewhere else. So if I harden, if I make an airport terminal so difficult to attack, there's all shops and theatres and stadiums and, and everything else. So, um, and that makes it, and that in a sense, makes it even less cost effective because you're really not re- reducing the risks to society at all. Because right? you're dealing with, with, with someone who's going to be intelligent and going to try, try and find the softest target. Yes?
0: focal points between the government and the terrorists. They both know that those are like hot spots, that there might be a high risk associated with it. In the course of your presentation, you were talking about how um, you can choose between having a marshal or a special kind of door, Mm. and those two solutions are differently cost effective. Mm. Now, I wonder if the decision on the part of the government to go with one solution rather than the other has an impact on this kind of attack that the terrorist group
2: might decide to place. And so, making these two options not quite perfectly substitutable. Um, uh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't want to give the impression that it's, it's either one one or the other. Right? There's a whole mix. Right? And, and one thing I didn't really, one thing which is difficult to quantify is the deterrent effect. right, so um, the government doesn't really advertise... Well, at least our government doesn't advertise openly how many air marshals there are and what flights are on. So, you you know, the idea is to have that deterrent effect as well. So, um, this work is, you know, is very simplistic in a sense. It's really just to illustrate some of the concepts. I mean, if, if, if 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 you want to do a serious study on aviation security in the US, for example, you know, I could see that being many, many, man years of work. Right? Just, just trying to look at all the measures, how they interact, with, how they interact with each other, trying to look at the potential scenarios. What if? What if you take this one out and put this one in, and everything else? No, you, you can't do that, you can't do, do, do that easily. And, um, and I don't see that work being done by the DHS. You know, they, they have resources to do that sort of things, and, and given the large amounts of public money that's been spent. Uh, I would expect that's sort of work to be done. Yes? Uh, first quick question. How did you come up with five million dollars for human life? Oh, uh, no, there's a large amount of of um, data on, on that. So um, when, when we do cost when we do cost benefit analyses, uh, that's always going to be important, whatever the hazard is going to be. Um, a report a, uh, a report came out last year financed by the U- U- US Coast Guard Service where they looked at the value of human life for deaths from terrorist events and they came out that it should be $6.3 million. Right? And and that fits within, within what, what happens in in the nuclear area and the offshore industry area and all those other issues. So, um, But it is sensitive. <laughs> so and so what that paper, so what that um, report said is that if you do do a cost, a cost benefit analysis, you should always do a sensitivity analysis where you double the value of human life, right, to maybe twelve million dollars. And if that changes if that changes the decision, right, or that changes the outcome from plus to minus, then you, that retells really you you're probably not really sure whether you're getting getting a net benefit or not. So it's, you don't use one number and that's it. Right, you said look at the range of values to see how sensitive it's going to be. So the,
3: it's the discounted present value of foregone
1: earnings. Yeah, there's different and ways. Or willing, yeah, or willingness to pay. So willing, willingness to pay is, is another way. Earnings. earnings,
3: you've got a financial expert who has been working in derivatives in the kindergarten and future, yeah. both at risk on playing plane. Of course, you have a very small value of loss mm. of life, Yeah. <laughs> so it's a very tricky business, mm-hmm. and you're right; you really have to use. It. Mm-hmm. But we make decisions all the time publicly mm-hmm. that implicitly put values on them mm-hmm. by deciding what to do about prenatal care, about deciding which crossing to fix, etc., yep. etc. Et
1: yep. yeah. On on. yeah. Yeah, and and um, it's something work I've of, done. Of, of, I've done with John. We've published some some tables that shows how much US government spends on on, on particular regulations, and how many lives are saved. You know. And, for example, putting in um, airbags on steering wheels, you know, you're really spending a hundred thousand dollars to save a life. So that's a very efficient use of use of money. The other extreme is trying to um, get rid of asbestos in, in buildings and houses, and that's a very expensive process. And the benefits are pretty marginal. You might only save um, I think 30, 40 lives per year in the US. We are spending f- hundreds of billions, no, I think 20 or 30 billion dollars a year on that. Right? So that's very inefficient use. And, 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 and to take your example, the same thing applies as if, is if in terms of um, um, earnings, is someone who's elderly are they less less valuable to society than someone who's young who you know, just finished college, for example? So yeah, it's full of. And there must be thousands of papers on this issue, but they all come down to maybe five, ten million dollars. Roughly that ballpark. Yeah.
3: My other question has to do with uh, homeland security as risk averse, but I'm wondering how much we know about citizen consumers and whether they have strong preferences for certain kinds of attacks versus others. In other words, are they much more risk averse if they're in a plane or sitting on a bridge rather than in a terminal or? In a post office or something, where they think they've got some probability of escape, do
1: we have any sense in that how yeah. that translates willingness to pay for protection? Uh, is an important issue. Well, yeah, and in in in, in the model here, I've basically assumed a, a risk-neutral attitude, so, so it's it's, it's everything everything is going to average out. Yeah. But to be really accurate, and as I said, I could make this in hundred equations. You want to start to look at. You start to model the, the degree of risk-averseness. Right? And some people are risk-takers and some people aren't. And it depends. If you're in a plane, you're normally more risk-averse because you feel helpless, you can't do much. If you're driving a car, people feel that they're in control and they're a better driver than everyone else. So they're normally, normally g- g- going to be a risk-taker because right? you have more confidence in, 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 in your ability. But these are things that you need to factor in. Yeah. Yes? Yeah, well, I mean, again, in a more detailed study, you would try to look at the threat environment to see whether it does go in cycles. And you know, that's where you need to invest some money and, and actually, The whole idea is to actually actually put numbers to this. You know, and if you, if you can come up with a model where you, you can see some cycles or you see some preconditions, which, which, if they occur, could lead to more attacks, then that's something that you are factoring. in. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Rick?
3: The puzzle, then, for
0: me, is why uh, people make decisions to spend so much on things that are uh, not a great threat. I know it's not hard to model, but what's your approach? Why are so many bad decisions? Well, very expensive decisions being
1: made. Public opinion, I think. And these are made by politicians, I imagine. (laughs) So um, the terrorism issue is really interesting because... But at least in Australia, I mean, in Australia, the governments don't like to spend money. You know, they're, they're normally you know that that goes against the grain. Yet for terrorism, the Australian government couldn't dish out money fast enough. You know, after 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 nine after nine, 9, 9 eleven, and I think that's just the public expected something to be done, and and spending money quickly was seen as taking action. Um, but. It's been, but I think there's time to be, and and at at that point in time, you can can see why. But then it's hard for government to then claw claw back because then it feels like you're making people less safe. So they're sort of committed, in in a sense. So it it, it could almost be uh, too late. It's it's difficult for governments to say, well, actually, we've spent too much money, we'll give you less security now.
2: Hmm. And sort of a general question to follow it up: um, Is this model meant to be then made more for retrofitting structures or for ones that are new? Uh,
1: or it-, it works in both. It works for both cases. And so this model is very simplistic. So you know you wouldn't use this model to, to determine how you can spend billions of dollars. you know, you need to invest more time and come up with something more <laughs> refined. But I suppose the point of this is just give you an idea for the framework. There's right. so the questions you need to be asking and sort of what we need to start to be able to um, um, quantify to get some rigour into it. Would
3: anything about the model
0: you've presenting today uh, strike your, your engineering colleagues as unusual or would they see this as sort of
1: everyday standard fair way of going by yeah. Way things. Yeah, that does go. Okay. <laughs> What's next? <laughs> so I mean if I was talking if I was talking to my engineering colleagues I would not give them just a simple equation. Right. would be saying, what about this and that and then there'd be all sorts of things. So yeah, so th- this is stock standard approach. So th- there's nothing revolutionary here. It's just really it's a, it's a new new it's a new application in a sense. Uh, and that's why it's good um, Having collaboration with the Michonne Center because I was focused on buildings and bridges. That's that was my that was my
0: I guess a my mindset. John, uh, what's the initial feedback from the policy world, the political world, to this kind of reasoning? From the policy world? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to get stuff
3: published. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. Let me ask you another question. Uh, one thing you all when you talk about engineers deal, one thing that's different about terrorism is that the, the thing that destroys it can move. Mm. So if you protect the bridge, um, you, you, the hurricanes don't protect a different bridge yeah. because you protect it, but terrorists can't. Um, and you mentioned that just very briefly in passing. Uh, how, you hand, how can you handle that? In the case of airplanes, you can protect every single airplane in the sense that all passengers on the certain will stop or everyone has a uh, uh, protected cabin
2: infinite
1: number of targets and certain even number of bridges essentially. Well, and I, I think the thing, is, I think what it's shown is you just can't protect it, you can't protect everything, right, and, um, and as soon as you protect some things then the terrorists can just go on and you know, pick, pick us off to target. So you spend a lot of money strengthening bridges in some parts of the US or some parts elsewhere. The odds are it won't make the the society as a whole any safer. And so I think so so the idea the concept of risk transfer is something which which is something which is very important for this for this type of threat, which doesn't happen for natural hazards. But the big bit yeah, I suppose with management and colleagues the the difficult stuff for us to handle is, is what's the probability of you know, what is the probability of an attack? Um, and you can't narrow that down you know, to five decimal places, but you should have some feel on those plots roughly where you are along that axis, right? You know, within, within, within an order of magnitude, at least, you should know roughly where you are.
4: Yeah? It seems like applying this model to terrorism Manipulating the probabilities, but if we really started to think about the costs in very, very different terms, you know, magnitudes of 10, and, um, it seems like you might
1: come to a different conclusion. Yeah, well, I think in most cases the costs I involved weren't, weren't just the, the, the direct um, cost to the, to the individuals exposed. Right? I mean, I think for, like, like for 9 11, I think $85 billion of that was really, really loss of GDP. Right, so not 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 just the victims not just the victims themselves, but yeah, I mean you're right. You, it's it's difficult to think about the consequences because it, it covers the 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 entire nation. And that, on the on the other hand, though, is that a lot of these consequences are not it doesn't directly follow that it's an attack. You should have all these other other consequences. In many cases, in a sense we we terrorise ourselves, um, and a good example well, of maybe. The, one example is that after, 9, 9, after 9-11, most people in many countries just didn't want to fly, right? So tourism dropped, you know, you know, airlines began losing awful you know, loads and loads of money. Um, but with the um, London tube, tube bombings in 2005, I think, I think numbers in the tube were back to normal within one or two weeks. Right? So, so there that the British just said, you know, we'll we just get on with it and they took on the tube and that was almost like an act of defiance, in a sense. So, so the, um, the way the public reacted in the UK wasn't the same as the way the public reacted in the US and, and other countries after, nine, after nine, 9-11. Um, and you could argue, again, this is not my field, field but I'd argue that, in a sense, the governments and our government was the same, they sort of heightened the sense of alarm after 9-11. Uh, And therefore, that makes the public more fearful. Therefore, they're going to act irrationally in in many cases.
3: Well,
0: you know, one good idea I guess Martin would be instead of taking every seventh or tenth person out. Bag more carefully. You take every seven-tenth person give them a handgun
1: <laughs>
0: and tell them they're typical American their, solution. Their part of that passenger <laughs> resistance
1: <laughs> and
0: fight back. And so, randomly, you know, 30 passengers per plane are the selected fight backers.
3: The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just
0: thinking yeah. oh, that, that would really <laughs> give you your back, <laughs> <laughs> so to
1: speak. Okay, so maybe I, I get some funding from the um, NLA. That could be it. <laughs> okay, well,
0: Thank you very much. It's been great Thank to you. have you just talking. I'm nice good. to have you here again this year. <laughs> Thank, Thank you very much. much.